Hey guys, welcome to week two. Take two. Hey guys, welcome to week two. It's uh, day 25 on the quarantine count up. And uh, starting to get our legs here with the road instruction thing. So last week, uh, we looked at what political reform is, how it compares to other kinds of reform, and uh, examined the four avenues uh, through which political reform can take place and looked at how they compare to each other and what the opportunities and obstacles in each of those are. Um, this week we're going to try to take a step back and uh, look at the guiding principles behind political reform. What is it that generates ideas uh, that, uh, and critiques of the way the system is and ideas for uh, new approaches, new systems, new rules, new institutions, etc. Um, so we're going to do a week on democratic theory. And part of the reason why democratic theory is so important is that a democratic system is a system of uh, its rules, procedures, and institutions. Uh, and so it's, it can be really seen as a kind of a self-contained, rule-driven game. Uh, and I've been thinking about games uh, a lot lately. I've been uh, playing a lot of board games with my son Zane. And uh, I always talk about politics or you know democratic politics as a type of a board game in a way or at least the analogy seems to me to hold up I've been playing a lot of different games and it's reminded me that different types of uh, rules different types of setup really have an impact on not only how the game goes down but on who does well and what kinds of skills and uh, approaches and strategies lead uh, to greater success there's there's two games that we played two new games one is a deck building game where there's a bunch of cards and you have to buy cards and you get points for doing various things. And another one is this potion building game where there are these marbles in a kind of an array in rows and you have to pluck out the marbles and build potions and do various things. And uh, they're very similar in the sense that you're taking things and you're building to create points. And that's pretty much what a lot of games are about. Some games are boards and where, you know, uh, where you're moving pieces around and trying to collect stuff and get there first or get the most points uh, or reach some goal first. Another other ones are where you have kind of a, either a map or some kind of terrain where you're trying to take over territory. There's a lot of different types of games. And so even just the kind of game that uh, you're playing is gonna affect one, uh, what kind of person does well, two, how it goes down, how long it takes, uh, three, the strategies, but even just these two games have reminded me uh, in, in the, the potion building one with the marbles, I played it for the first time and I just looked right at the marble array and I was like, oh, I know how to do this because it spoke well to, or my, my visual brain worked well with this type of game. The deck building game where you have to look at an array of cards and they all have things to do and there's points, uh, I don't do so well at that. So Zane actually dominates the deck building game and I've been dominating the marble potion building game uh, and it's uh, because it's just the way my mind works is it's easier for me to do well at that one game. The way his mind works it's easier for him to do well at that other game. The kind of strategy that, that uh, leads to success comes more naturally to me in the potion building game and it comes more naturally to him in that particular deck building game. Um, Democratic systems are the same way, and uh, different rules, different boards, right? And we'll talk talk about when we talk about systems of representation. It's kind of an analogy to a board. Um, different uh, regulations, different points are going to speak to or emphasize certain kinds of skills, and certain kinds of people are going to succeed, and certain kinds of people are going to have more difficulty succeeding. Certain kinds of outcomes are going to obtain with different kinds of rules. And the reason why this is important for political uh, reform is that 
we are looking with the political reform movement of any kind to have a positive impact on the game of democratic politics. We're looking to have it played in a way that leads to one type of behavior and one type of outcome versus another type of behavior and another type of outcome. So it's useful to understand and to know that you can't just tell people how to behave. You can't just say people should be more civil or uh, uh, legislators should be more responsive to the people or uh, executives should be more, uh, the people who lead executive branches should be more unifying and uh, have certain leadership qualities. These are things that you can want but you're not going to get these things just by saying, well, we ought to have them. You're not going to get these things by saying to the people playing the game, this is how you ought to behave. Right? You can do that kind of thing, and people often do complain about the behavior of people in democratic systems that they don't do what it seems like they should do. Right? People ought to vote more. People ought to be more engaged. Uh, there are so many ought-tos and so many critiques, and it's legitimate to say people ought to do this. Uh, but what you have to realize is that the reason why they're not is not because they're failures or they're jerks or our culture is consumerist or whatever it happens to be. I mean, there could be those factors playing into it. But generally, it's because the structure of the endeavor, the game itself, is set up in a way that incentivizes certain kinds of behaviors and de-incentivizes other kinds of behaviors. In politics, many of those outcomes are unintended consequences. It's not necessarily, necessarily intended by the founders of the Constitution or by the people who wrote the statutes that uh, determine most of the details or by the uh, judges who do, who do the interpretation and exercise judicial review uh, or the people who uh, um, create uh, ballot measures that change the political system. It's not necessarily their intention for these outcomes, the negative outcomes, these problematic outcomes to obtain. Uh, it could be that it was their intention, and it's just that the people who are criticizing them don't like it. For, ex you know, for example, there's a high level of dissatisfaction with uh, Congress, and that's pretty standard in American history. Uh, it's you know, historically low approval ratings for Congress, but congressional approval ratings uh, tend to be relatively low, and people say, well, Congress, they're not doing enough, they're not uh, representing us, there's too much partisanship, too much infighting. These are all legitimate complaints. Um, the people who set up our congressional system, who created a bicameral legislature, uh, who made different election terms for both senators and uh, members of the House of Representatives, who created different types of territories that they represented, um, and then the people who built up the electoral systems that cho chose those people, they actually, at least the founders, they had some intention in that direction. Right? There was an intention to create a legislative system that wasn't going to be really quickly responsive to the popular will, that wasn't going to be a smooth decision-making mechanism that turned the outcome of an election into policy outcomes really quickly. Uh, so people who are frustrated with the fact that Congress is status quo-oriented and uh, that it's very difficult to get things through, that there's a high level of partisanship, uh, that the policy-making process seems to not lend itself well to uh, speed or to uh, good policy. Um, they're actually showing frustration with the system as it's intended to run. Uh, there are other types of outcomes that weren't necessarily intended um, that are unintended byproducts of the way the system was set up. <clears throat> and uh, so, uh, for example, it's, you know, it, the... the uh, presidential appointment of Supreme Court justices and the lifetime appointment of it, 
Um, this wasn't necessarily intended to make presidential elections so focused on the uh, issue of who's going to be on the Supreme Court. And while presidential elections are about a lot of uh, things, one of the big issues that they are about, especially now um, <clears throat> in the 21st century, is picking the president that's going to put people on the court that you like the most. A lot of voters will make their presidential choice based on that. That wasn't an intended outcome uh, of setting up lifetime appointments. Um, and uh, it wasn't intended that the presidents would pick relatively young people who have very uh, discernible ideological leanings because they have this really big uh, resume of judicial rulings. It wasn't intended to have our Supreme Court be full of people who came from the appellate courts. They have uh, hundreds and usually thousands of rulings that can, uh, that can determine what they're going to be like for the next 30 years or 40 years that they're on the court, and that presidents would, would pick people in a specific ideological lane. None of that was particularly intended, but that's how the system has worked out. So we have an, in, a relatively intended consequence that Congress is hard to move uh, quickly because the founders were in fact a little suspicious of the government. They were suspicious of popular government. They were suspicious of direct ele uh, directly elected representatives having too much ability to turn popular will into uh, legislation. So Congress is working, you know, the, the people who are at the Constitutional Convention, if they could see Congress today, they might be appalled by certain aspects of it, but they wouldn't necessarily be surprised or, 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 or deeply uh, critical of the uh, sort of fact that Congress is hard to move forward. But the way that uh, the Supreme Court looks and the way the presidential elections themselves are uh, about Supreme Court appointments in a large way, I think that would be surprising. Now, maybe some of them would approve of it, but I think that it would be surprising. So, political systems have intended as well as unintended consequences, and political reform is about taking our critiques of the outcomes that we're getting and turning them into proposals to change the rules, the procedures, the institutions, the roles, the interaction between uh, different institutions, uh, any aspect of the political system. So it's essentially to take this game as it's being, as it's structured, and as uh, it's then being played, and looking at the outcomes, the way people play it, how they do it, what kinds of uh, outcomes we get from electoral systems and from systems of governance, and to say, well, that falls short of what we want, or it's moving in a different direction of what we want, so how can we change the rules? How can we change the procedures? in order to be able to make it be more like we want it to be. Now, in order to be able to have that kind of intentionality, you have to know what it is that you want uh, and have an understanding of the way that it is that certain kinds of democratic procedures either get you there or fail to get you there. And this week we're gonna look at uh, the various questions. We're not going to do a huge survey of democratic theory because that would be an entire class. In fact, there is a class called democratic theory um, that I teach. I think I'm teaching it next winter or spring uh, where, and I've taken the readings for this week are drawn from the larger readings from that class, but we're going we're gonna to kind of just dip into the really central features of, uh, uh, of um, democratic theory. And today we're going to look at representation and elections. Uh, <clears throat> I do have some notes, so I'm going to pick up my clipboard here and, uh, and look at these notes. Let's see. Uh, right, okay, so a democracy is when people rule themselves. I, I'm going to refer back to that a lot in this class. Um, and the question is, of course, how do the people rule themselves? Uh, that is uh, an important 
question in democratic theory. In fact, it's essentially the driving force behind all of what democratic theory is. How can we set up a system so that people will rule themselves? Well, there's two rough ways that they can do it. They can either rule themselves directly by deciding on the policies and the rules and the procedures, you know, right straightforward. The people assemble, they vote, they discuss whatever procedure they uh, use to do that, but they can somehow, without intervening mechanisms, with no medium in between, <coughs> directly go from the people directly to policy. And uh, that form of democracy, direct democracy, raises all kinds of questions in democratic theory because it's a simple model, but there are all kinds of ways, in fact, that the people could make that direct, uh, have that direct uh, influence, that direct control over policy. Um, even just the idea that, like, okay, we're going to have ballot measures, and the people are going to get to vote yes or no on ballot measures. Just deciding that it's a yes or no vote uh, is already answering a particular question about how are we going to do this. Um, the, any state that has a single issue uh, requirement, that a ballot measure have only a single issue and not be a complex bill, that's already answering the question about how uh, direct democracy works. But even if we have no other form of democracy, we just have a purely direct democracy, nothing else, we're still going to have to say, okay, well here's how voting is going to take place. What kind of discussion precedes it? What are the requirements for that discussion? And how do people cast ballots? Because the yes-no ballot is not the only type of ballot that could be used. It's the one we're familiar with, um, but it's not the only kind. One of the things about our survey of democratic theory is that we're going to run into a lot of things that are very familiar to our system of government, and we're going to run into things that uh, are completely unfamiliar, things that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. There's all kinds of uh, ideas in democratic theory. There have been many innovations. One of the problems with our federal system, at least, uh, less so with the states uh, and local governments, but definitely with the federal system, is that our Constitution was written at a time when there weren't a ton of ideas about how a democratic system uh, could run. And so there weren't as many different options. Uh, the, the, there was really kind of one game that it was known how to play and call it uh, democracy. Um, and there were a few options within that game. And uh, so our founders didn't have a whole lot of uh, different ideas to, to discuss at the Constitutional Convention. Um, <clears throat> okay, getting back to this. The other way is, of course, indirectly. <laughs> And this is where the people choose representatives who then make policy. Um, so this is indirect democracy, and this is direct democracy. There really are major limitations to the application of direct democracy. One of them, of course, is scale. Right? You really can't scale direct democracy up extremely well. It, it does, it's potential, it's possible to scale it above the town meeting, obviously, um, and we do have ballot measures, but uh, that when you start to scale up, one, direct democracy becomes more difficult as the people gets larger and more, dis more dispersed and some kind of actual discussion uh, becomes more problematic and it does become more necessary to narrow the choices down to simpler yes-no single issue type choices, but also um, the, uh, the as, at larger scales, it's going to be very difficult to make all of the decisions 
that need to be made to run a larger, more complex society by asking the people. And so representatives are people who are essentially professional policymakers, whereas the people aren't expected to be professional policymakers, and they're not expected to have that be their full-time job. So really, any realistic system of politics, and this is not a, uh, this is not a dramatically uh, um, controversial statement, is going to uh, need indirect democracy. And you know, one of the things about democratic theory is we can have a mixture of uh, direct and indirect, which we, which we do. Um, so the thing is, is that when we have indirect democracy, we have now a couple of really important questions, right? How do we select these representatives? What do they represent? And how do we want them to behave? Now, notice that I put these as sort of sub-questions under how to select because uh, the overall question of well, how are we going to choose our representatives? The two sub-questions, what do they represent and how do we want them to behave, are going to drive how it is that we select them. So we, we, we're going to want to keep these in mind. This is the sort of uh, question that is the uh, fundamental question of, okay, we're not going to have the people, we're going to have representatives, but what aspect of the people are they representing? It might seem like, well, just they just represent people, right? Well, yes, but what aspect of the people? Do they represent uh, a territory? Do they represent a set of ideas? Do they represent a particular demographic constituency? There are a lot of different, or there are those three different, at least, uh, dimensions of what the people are that we might want our representatives to represent. We are the most familiar in our system with representatives representing a geographic territory, either a state or a congressional district, or in the case of uh, um, the president, the entire nation. Uh, that's the one we're most familiar with. But there are other, as I'll explore today, there are other things that are, uh, we might want our representatives to represent. And then, how do we want them to behave? Right? This is also a, uh, an important question. You can't necessarily control directly how the representatives behave. But the way that they are selected will make it more likely that certain types of people will win and other types of people will lose. And that in order to win and, and win re-election, that certain kinds of behaviors will be beneficial and other kinds of behaviors will be uh, detrimental to winning re-election. So this question will be answered by, or the behavior of, of our elected officials will in a large measure be determined by how we select them. Um, and of course, how we select them is really important. Uh, it, it's an important decision in, beforehand to decide, well, what are they going to represent? These two questions can be stated separately, but they really are related. They, 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 are, they can be stated separately, but they end up affecting each other. Um, so if we're having people who represent a geographic territory and a constituency, a, a, a geographically bounded constituency within that territory, then that's going to determine a certain kind of behavior. If we have people who are representing a set of ideas instead of a, 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 a group of people, a set of people who share a set of ideas, I should say, um, then we're going to have a very, not only a very different type of electoral system, we're going to end up with people behaving uh, differently. So 
these are the two sort of background questions. Um, what, what do people represent? Um, so, models of representation. That's this question being answered. Um, there are really three basic things that we could want our representatives to represent. One is a territory and a constituency, a territorial constituency. These are geographically bounded people. Um, the state of Oregon, uh, the uh, Multnomah County, the city of Portland. Uh, these are all territorial constituencies. Um, again, this is the model that we're most familiar with. And I will say that when our constitution was written and when our electoral laws developed, this was really the only idea that existed in democratic theory. Democratic theory was very young. In fact, it was extremely larval. Uh, our constitution was really uh, one of the earliest contributions to democratic theory, and it was uh, kind of an applied uh, democratic theory. We're like, okay, let's set it up this way and we'll see how it runs. Uh, it was considered to be an experiment, and it's I sometimes still called the American experiment. I like to think of it as the American experiment uh, a lot as well. The uh, other types of things that exist, and probably you've heard of these, uh, possibly you've heard of these, I should say, um, but they're not really central to the the American political culture, so they're quite unfamiliar, is they can represent an ideological constituency. Or they can represent some kind of demographic group. Uh, the ideological constituency, a different way to put this is, it, is it, uh, our representatives can represent a party platform or um, a party slate, uh, but it's an ideological constituency in the sense that people are elected because they themselves represent a set of ideas that a group of people who vote for them share to some uh, particular extent. Uh, hopefully they share an awful lot. Um, a demographic group is really, we could, there, there are any, any demographic category that you want. It could be age, it could be gender, it could be race, it could be religion, uh, it could be profession, uh, it could be uh, um, ethnic background, uh, it could be um, income, right? These are all demographic categories, and there's really, you know, there's no end to de potential demographic categories, though the ones I listed uh, are pretty much the major ones that we're mostly familiar with uh, that could potentially generate the idea of representation. Um, now, before you say, well, that sounds like quotas. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, maybe you're not saying that, but I'm saying it on your behalf. I can't tell because I'm talking to a camera in my dining room and there's nobody here, but you're there because you're watching this video or you're listening to the audio of this. So you're there in a way. I'm still adapting to that notion. Um, but it can be quotas, um, but it can also be kind of a target, right? One of the things that is, uh, I would say, problematic in our federal system, that's less so at the state level, is that um, women are severely un underrepresented. And, you know, we can say underrepresented. Um, the, I believe that the largest number of women in the Senate ever, historically, has been 17 out of 100. Um, women represent 51% of the population, and also, they typically represent a higher percentage of, the, of uh, voters, usually 54 to 55% of voters, and yet 17% of senators 
are women. That's about one third of uh, the women's share of the population is represented in Congress. Now, clearly, it's because we have a territorial constituency. We don't have a demographic constituency, but we can say, well, that's a, that, that, that's a criticism that we have of our system, that a very important group of voters and of citizens, uh, an important dimension of uh, uh, policy perspective, uh, women's perspective, women's concerns, women's you know, view on the world as people who've had to live with uh, a patriarchal culture for so long, that that is severely underrepresented, and that's a problem. Now, you can have a form of demographic representation that does, in fact, say, okay, women get 50% of the seats in the legislature, and men get 50% of the seats in the legislature, and women are going to vote for the women representatives, and men are going to vote for the male representatives. Uh, that, that is a theoretically possible idea. Uh, all of the ideas today are theoretically possible, um, and then, of course, some of them are going to very quickly raise objections uh, that are probably stronger than, uh, or at least you know, seem on the surface stronger than uh, the benefits of it. Like To say the U.S. Senate is going to be divided into 50% women and 50% men, and every state gets two senators, and one of them has to be a woman, and one of them has to be a man, and in Senate elections, women get to vote for the female candidate and men get to vote for the male candidate, that, that probably seems super over the top as a way of getting uh, ba gender balance in one of the two houses of uh, Congress. Um, but it's possible, and we could say, well, be, that would be, it would be really good to have way more women, ha half of women in the Senate would be fantastic. How could we get there without necessarily just creating this uh, dual electoral system, one electoral system for men and one electoral system uh, for women? You could do it directly by having dual systems or by saying, okay, well, you know, uh, we're, we have whatever percentage of uh, people in our country are Christian, are Muslim, are Jewish, are uh, other religions, are non-religious, and we're going to have a quota so that those groups are proportionally represented in our scheme of representation. Again, that might seem to us kind of crazy, um, and maybe it really doesn't make any sense uh, because religious divisions aren't as you know super important in our society. They're obviously real, and they, they do create uh, certain kinds of problems. In a country that has, say, two or three really sharply divided religious groups, let's say, like Iraq has the Sunni and the Shiite Muslims and the Kurds. Um, it could make sense in that kind of environment to actually say, here's the Sunni representatives, here's the Kurdish representatives, and here are the Shiite representatives. Um, I would say that typically, when those, if that kind of demographic uh, group is going to be represented directly like that, that it's good, there's going to be a mixed system. There's going to be one house of the legislature or one set of seats in one house of the legislature is going to be set aside for that type of quota and the rest will be done at large or the rest will be done without any kind of uh, demographic quotas. But again, in a democratic system, all of these choices are available and some of them <clears throat> seem crazy to us because they're unfamiliar and some of them seem crazy to us because actually like, oh boy, like setting quotas for religious groups or for gender groups to be in the legislature, that seems like it's gonna create more animosity and conflict than it's going to benefit society by making sure that these different voices are represented at sort of their proportion in the population. 
However, we can also say that we could shoot for a certain kind of democratic representation without necessarily having a specific uh, quota set aside, that other procedures could be put in place uh, somewhere to make it more likely that we're going to get a rough democratic, or excuse me, demographic representation for certain kinds of groups. So if we're going to have a territorial constituency or we're going to have an ideological constituency, um, there could be, for example, uh, rules that make it easier for uh, underrepresented groups to win victories. Um, so, uh, you know, women in American politics and in a lot of democratic systems face uh, a lot of obstacles. Got to get a little water here. This is my first time drinking water on camera. I don't know why it seems so weird. I do it in the classroom all the time. Uh, women face certain kinds of obstacles uh, in... <coughs> In our political system, there's a gender double standard. Uh, the way that uh, um, women candidates have to behave is different than the way men have to behave. It's way easier for men to decide to run in the first place uh, because of the kind of domestic arrangements that our society tends to have, etc., etc. I don't need to go into all the reasons why it's harder for women to win uh, office. If we wanted to maintain our territorial system of representation, but get a demographic representation uh, component introduced into our system and say, we want more women who are able to win Senate and House races. We want to make it more possible for uh, women to uh, run and win federal, state, and local offices. Well, what could do that? Right? Um, our model of representation, if we stick with this one, that won't do it by itself, but there are other procedures that could potentially make it much, much more possible. For example, we could make, uh, you could say, well, what are, what are, what are some of the obstacles? Um, some of the obstacles are that uh, women just don't have as much exposure to networks of fundraising that men do. Um, <clears throat> and that's because of economic disparities that are historically based. Well, would public financing or would some kind of enhanced public matching uh, money, would that make it easier for more women to raise the kind of money than men do? And the answer is, uh, or raise the, the raise equivalent amount, the answer is probably, right? Now, this would require, what does it take to get democratic demographic representation in a territorial system? It's gonna take some analysis of what is creating the gap. Um, and so there won't necessarily, this kind of takes us actually out of democratic theory and more into uh, political sociology uh, and political analysis, which is, okay, what are the obstacles that are keeping women from being roughly 50% of the U.S. Senate that are that have uh, only a third of women's share in the in, in in the population in this extremely important lawmaking body, we're going to have to do some analysis and then draw create proposals. Uh, so so not all questions can be answered by democratic theory in terms of how do we get the outcomes that we get. Um, but we can just note that well we actually might want this. And in fact, all three of these models of representation are things that are desirable and beneficial in a democratic system. Right? We want, to a certain extent, or it's desirable, to have our representatives actually have a group of people who live in a place who have a person or more than one person, uh, because territorial constituencies don't necessarily require a one-to-one -one matching. There are multi-member districts, and I'll talk about all the different variations uh, as we move forward today. But we might really like that, because what that means is that everybody has a person that 
is directly tied to them and their territory, where they live, the economy, the culture, and that that really is, is valuable. But also, what we might want and recognize is that ideological representation is really important as well because what we want is we want people who are able to go to a legislative uh, system with a set of ideas that they know all of their constituents are behind, um, not just some percentage of the people who live in that territory. Uh, an ideological constituency is going to be geographically scattered but ideologically coherent. A territorial constituency is geographically uh, uh, contained, but ideologically fragmented. Um, and uh, it's both of those things have their benefits. They also, both of those things have their downsides, right? The fact that you have, let's say we have a single member district, uh, and one person represents the entire constituency. Well, there are going to be a lot of people in that constituency who didn't vote for that person, who voted for their opponents, and who in fact maybe is deeply opposed to the policies and ideas of the person who won. Um, and they're going to feel unrepresented. Uh, there are going to be people who uh, maybe didn't vote at all or did vote, it doesn't matter who they voted for, who are not high enough on the list of priorities for the person that won. Right? Could be somebody who works in uh, an industry that's marginal to the economic life of uh, that district, and so the representative doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. Let's say there's not a ton of uh, fishermen in a particular district, but there are some, and the uh, concerns of uh, fishermen are either completely off the list of the representative or way down the list so that it's kind of like it not existing at all. That group of people is going to feel unrepresented, and so they might like to actually have somebody who represents uh, the, uh, them in terms of their ideas or their interests that, that actually doesn't represent a territory but represents them as they are connected to other people who are geographically scattered. So this is the most familiar and it's the most dominant, but it's by far uh, uh, not the only one. Now, representation, we can, it, tell, it tells us what we uh, want to have and uh, how do we translate that into an electoral system? Well, there's a few questions that have to be answered. Um, one, with a territorial constituency, I'm gonna box off this question, because my notes might get a little messy here as we move across. Uh, the territorial constituency requires a map. Actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna put, and I may need more than one board today, uh, certainly this particular board is not gonna contain all of the material for every lecture, and uh, this one is starting to feel like it's not going to. Um, when you have a territorial constituency, you have to make a few choices. One, you have to have a map. And uh, one question is, what does the map look like? And another question is, who draws the map and who redraws the map? Uh, when it's necessary because of uh, population movement to, to redraw the boundaries. So the map is an extremely important feature of a territorial constituency. There's no map in an ideological constituency. There might or might not be a map with uh, a demographic uh, form of representation, but there doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, what there needs to be for a demographic group is there needs to be a determination of which group or groups are relevant criteria for deciding who is going to uh, uh, be uh, in, the, in the system of uh, government, but 
uh, we don't necessarily have to have a map in order to be able to do that. We, we need, in this case, demographic data. A map requires census data and geographic information. We need a map. We also need to know how many representatives per district. And, uh, whoops, I should just instead of question mark, per district. Um, so the map is what are the districts look like and who makes the map. And, and I, I won't continue to write all the stuff because it'll start to get a little crowded, but then also like what criteria are used by the people who make the map to, to make the map and what are the limitations, etc. Almost every question that we raise as we move through democratic theory will raise a number of sub-questions that themselves can raise a number of sub-sub-questions as we move into from the sort of very most general and abstract to actually having a system that can uh, be used that will be implemented and that there are, no, uh, there are no unfilled details for how it's going to function. How many people per district? We're, we're very much used to the single member district, though we have uh, uh, two member districts as a part of our familiar uh, uh, political system, two senators per state. Uh, you could have three, you could have five, you could have nine. I mean, there's really no reason not to have any particular number that uh, you might want to have. And in fact, later in this term, we're going to read the city club's report for reforming the Portland city government, and they recommend a uh, three member uh, districts, uh, and there are various reasons for that, and they, you know, in that report, the people who wrote it, and we will discuss this as part of our class uh, exercise, considered various different sizes from one to five for the number of members who would represent each district. Um, why shouldn't we have three senators or five senators per state, uh, or one, right? Um, it, you know, it kind of makes sense to have more than one, actually, given how important the Senate is, um, but why not have three? Why not have five? Uh, would, would it be actually really beneficial for uh, what goes on in the Senate for every state to have five? Uh, because not only would that enlarge the size of the Senate so that there were more voices, um, it would create more opportunities for people to be in the Senate because if you multiply uh, it by the size of it by two and a half, that creates more openings and just that means more people can get there. Um, it might also create more diversity uh, in terms of who wins, right? Uh, even in a two-party system, we would probably end up with a lot of states that had three and two uh, um, representation in terms of Democratic or Republican, or four and one would be more common. There are a lot of states that have two Democrats or two Republicans. Uh, it used to be that there would, one and one was fairly common, and there still are a few states that have that, um, and that doesn't seem like it's going to completely disappear, but there are fewer states that actually have uh, uh, mixed-party senators. If we had five senators per state, or even three, it would be way more common to have mixed party senators. It might even be possible for a uh, third party, an unfamiliar, uh, or I shouldn't say unfamiliar party, but a, a party that, that at this point really has no chance of getting into the Senate to win a Senate seat, right? A libertarian could possibly win uh, a, a Senate election um, in a state that had five uh, senators. Uh, a, a, a Green Party person, a socialist or a democratic socialist, probably not a flat out socialist, but a democratic socialist, could probably win. Uh, but that's really one of the questions um, that gets asked. Another question that gets uh, raised is, um, do we have a majoritarian or a plurality?
And the difference is that in a territorial constituency, uh, if you have one winner, you have to decide, is it the person who gets the most votes, which is plurality, or is it the person who gets the majority of votes, which is 50% plus one? And in plurality systems, you just have an election, and whoever gets the most votes wins, unless it's a tie. You have to have a tie-breaking procedure, but it will probably not get uh, utilized very often. In a majoritarian system, you have to have in place some kind of runoff system, and then we have to uh, say, well, what does that runoff look like, right? Um, let's say uh, there are four candidates running for one seat in a majoritarian system. In the first round, nobody gets the majority. Um, the question now is, okay, who goes to the next round? Is it just the top two, or is it the top three? Or you know, do you have multiple rounds where what you do is you eliminate the lowest person? Um, so majoritarian systems raise a lot of questions that plurality systems uh, do not. Um, we have a majoritarian system for uh, our mayoral election uh, and for our city council elections actually as well and for uh, several other types of elections uh, in the state of Oregon. Um, and it goes like this. We have a primary in May and that primary is actually uh, you know, a general election in the sense that if there are, if there's a candidate who wins the majority of votes in that so-called primary, they win. There's no second round. There's no November general election. Uh, Ted Wheeler right now is running for uh, re-election as Portland's mayor. When he, when he became Portland mayor four years ago, he won a majority of votes in the first round, in the primary. There was no general election in 2016. There was no November election. Um, and he's hoping to do so again. Uh, I, I, I know his campaign manager, and she's really, she's like, we rented uh, our uh, campaign office through the end of May, and we're, you know, they'll, they'll rent it through November if they have to, but they're really hoping to win uh, now. Um, the, uh, so in a majoritarian system, it's possible that you do only have one round as opposed to uh, two, the two familiar rounds of primary and general election. This also raises the question of what kind of tiers do we have? Um, and I'm not even gonna put this up because this gets really into the weeds of too many questions and I really don't want the board to be too terribly ugly, but um, our mayoral election is a nonpartisan election, right? Everybody runs in one pool and then the top two vote getters go to November unless one of the people running in the big pool gets 50% plus one in that first round. Um, the more familiar primary general election two-tiered system is that the primary election is when parties choose their nominees, um, and usually through, at the, except at the presidential level, which uses a majoritarian delegate system, which itself is based on a plurality proportional delegate system, very complicated, uh, to, but the, the primaries at every level lower than presidential uh, use a, uh, most of them use a plurality system. If you win the most votes in the, in your party's primary, you're the party candidate in the general election, and then uh, there will be there could be multiple candidates, but there's going to be two candidates from the major parties, and then one of those two is going to win. So, do we allow that um, or not? Uh, we don't allow that in Portland. There is the parties don't get to pick their nominee to put on the ballot in November, and that is a very particular choice. So, partisan versus nonpartisan is another choice that has to be made. And I said that I wasn't. <laughs> going to put this up here, uh, but I realized even after I said it that I'm probably going to have to erase the board to make room for all the other stuff uh, that I have to do today, so why not throw it up there. Um, another question that needs to get raised is what type of ballot? Um, and the 
ballot type is directly related to uh, another question that gets raised, uh, not in single member districts, but in multi-member districts, which is the counting method. Ballot type is one of those things where, like, well, do you just mean paper ballot or electronic ballot or mail-in versus uh, in-person? That's actually, that yes, that is a question, though that's not a question right here. That's actually a question uh, that gets asked way down the line about, okay, we have to now have a functioning electoral system once we've made all, the, all these choices. Ballot type is, do we have a, uh, how do we choose? How do voters get to choose? There's, let's say there's six names on this list of people who are running in a majoritarian system for a single member district. All of this is already a bunch of choices that we've already made, right? It's a single member district, it's majoritarian. Now, we don't know that there's gonna be six people running, but you have to take into account the possibility that there are going to be six people. You also take into account the possibility that there's only gonna be one person, right? Um, but uh, always take into account the fact if we're gonna have a real estate election, there's gonna be two or more The kinds of election that we're familiar with is a single choice ballot. There's six names, there's two names, there's however many names there are, you as the voter get to pick one of them. You either fill it in with your pen, you punch it with your thing, you, you stab it on the screen, whatever actual the sort of physical ballot type is, you get to make one selection and that goes to the people who count. And then if it's a majoritarian system, if somebody has 50% of those ballots plus one, they win the election. If they don't, that kicks in uh, a whatever kind of runoff procedures. And then in the runoff procedures, typically what happens is you will get another ballot with fewer names on it, and you get to make one selection. Uh, there are also ranked preference ballots that allow you to make more than one selection, but they require you to do more than one thing. They require you not to just pick people, but to put them in order. Like, okay, that's my favorite candidate, number one. That's my second favorite candidate, number two. That's my third favorite candidate, number three. And the way those would work when they're counted up is that everybody's first preference is recorded. And again, there will have to be, at that point, some kind of uh, determination of what will get somebody to be a winner. Typically, you're not going to pair ranked preference voting with plurality because that doesn't really make any sense because what the second preference is never going to get used. If you say whoever has the most votes wins, well, that moots the whole idea of ranked preference. Um, but in a majoritarian system, you say, okay, th here's the first choices. And then, well, nobody got 50% plus one votes. If somebody did, great, we're done. And all those second choices don't matter. Uh, they were filled in, but they don't matter. But if, if no one does win, what we do is we eliminate the last place person, take all of their votes and look at who the second choice of all those voters were and add those to the totals of the people who are left and, and see does somebody now have 50% plus one, yes or no, and if not, eliminate the last person. Uh, now, that's not the only way to do it, right? There's so much complexity. Every choice you can make, you can usually, I shouldn't say every choice, many choices you make in democratic uh, theory, you could make in multiple different ways. I've said here that you eliminate the, per, the last place person, but there's no reason why that has to be the rule. You could say well, what we're going to do is we're going to eliminate the um, bottom two, or we're going to eliminate anybody who doesn't reach a threshold of say 15%, and that could be one candidate, it could be three candidates, 
And if, it's, and if all the candidates are above 15%, then the threshold goes up to 20% and goes up to 25%. So there's a, there could be a threshold form of elimination. You could also just say, we're going to eliminate everybody but the top two, and we're going to take the, all the other people and we're going to redistribute uh, their uh, second place preference votes. Now, if you're going to do it that way, you only have to ask voters for their uh, second place preference because we're only going to do two rounds of cuts. In every other form, you're going to ask voters for multiple preferences because there could be multiple rounds of cuts. So let's say there's five candidates and we eliminate the lowest candidate, take their votes and redistribute to their, the, the voters second place and that's going to give uh, new totals. And then like, oh, it still didn't get a majority for that, so we eliminate the fourth place person. Um, that, uh, and uh, the, the uh, fourth place person might have had some second place votes from the first round of elimination, so those voters' votes will go to their third choice if they actually even made a third choice, and if not, then that just falls out of the voter pool. So ranked preference voting uh, can, you know, can be quite complicated, though really, uh, the, you know, with computers, if this was done by hand, it would be very complicated. Uh, with computers where you just feed in what the numbers are, the computers can do this automatic uh, um, elimination and re uh, configuration, redistributing of the votes can do it very quickly uh, once all the ballots have actually been properly entered. And that's, that, of course, is also uh, a difficulty. Like, well, what if, what if it's unreadable? Uh, or what if somebody, uh, you know, uh, puts three candidates at top number one because they misunderstood? How do we deal with that ballot? Do we just throw it out? Um, another type of ballot is multi-candidate ballot, where you get to pick two people. Um, and if there are only two people running, that's absurd because both candidates could, in theory, get the same number of votes. Um, but we could, there could be a rule that says if there are more than two candidates, for every extra candidate, the voter gets to make half a selection more rounded up. So, for example, if there are three candidates and the baseline is one selection, uh, an extra candidate above two gives you a half extra vote, which rounds up. So you get to vote for two people, two out of three. And then what we do is we count them all up. Um, and of those three candidates, if you know, we are now talking about points really more than votes because uh, um, you vote, you know, my one vote, there could be three candidates, and I give, let's say it's presidential, and there's uh, um, Jill Stein and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and I fill out Hillary Clinton and Jill Stein. Well, each of those people gets a point, essentially, and I, even though I'm only one voter. And then we'd say, well, of all the points that have been awarded, does one of those candidates have 50% plus one? And if the answer is no, then we could uh, do some kind of elimination, or we could just have a plurality system. It would be simpler with the multi-candidate uh, voting system to have a plurality to say, who has the most points? That person is the winner. Um, if there were four, in this, under the rule I've just outlined, if there were four candidates, you would get two extra half votes based on the fact that there's two above the baseline of two, which would still only give you two choices. So if there were four candidates, you get two votes. If there's three candidates, you get two votes. On a fifth one, that adds a half, and that rounds up. So out of five, we would get three. Now, I'm not saying this is the most sensible uh, way to go about it. Maybe we could actually just say it's going to be a third for each additional candidate above uh, two. So if there were three candidates, every voter still gets one selection. But if there are four candidates, we get one and two-thirds, which rounds up to two. Out of four, we get two selections. There, there are any number of ways of setting up these kinds of systems. Once you introduce something beyond a simple one-voter, one-selection model, you're going to have other choices that are going to have to be made. 
Once you get beyond the plurality where most votes wins, you're going to have other choices to make. What, what happens in the runoff election? How does it go down? So some systems have fewer questions to answer um, and therefore are less complex. Uh, but uh, that isn't necessarily the ideal, is not to have the least complex system. The ideal is to give us the outcome that we want, right? Uh, in this case, we've already decided what we want them to represent. How do we want them to behave? I hope that you can see that these different electoral systems are going to get both candidates and voters to behave differently. Um, when you are a voter in a single member, plurality, winner-take-all uh, electoral system with, where you get to choose one name on the ballot, that's, the, that's very familiar. That's in fact, that's the dominant system of uh, elections in our country. When you have that, uh, a lot of people are going to be like, nah, you know, I don't even care, right? Because I don't like any of these people, and it's a partisan election, and I don't even didn't even like who was nominated in uh, in my party, and whatever. A lot of people in a plurality system are going to also vote for somebody who loses, and so it's going to be dispiriting. Um, candidates themselves are going to behave uh, a particular way because if you're running in a winner-take-all plurality uh, system where people get one vote, you're going to focus on a particular set of voters, right? You're going to look at uh, motivating your base, and you're going to look at swing voters. You're not going to look at a larger set of people. In these other systems, candidates and voters are going to behave differently. If you, if you can do rank preference voting, you as a voter might actually say, oh, hey, I hated having to decide between Jill Stein and Hillary Clinton. I, I hated the idea of voting for Hillary Clinton because she wasn't my top choice, but I hated the idea of voting for Jill, Jill Stein because it was throwing away my, throwing away my vote. I don't, I don't even want to, I don't want to do either one of them. Or I'm going to reluctantly and unhappily vote for Hillary Clinton, or I'm going to reluctantly and unhappily uh, uh, vote for Jill Stein, reluctantly not because she's not my top choice, but because I know it's purely symbolic. Um, with rank preference voting, voters are, uh, be, are able to have a different thought process, and so that's going to get them to engage the electoral system differently. Right? I can fill out Jill Stein happily and say number one and then when the when the voting statistics are shown it'll show that nine percent of Oregon voters on first round voted for Jill Stein but then I can then say okay well my second choice is Hillary Clinton and so I can both express my top preference and I can uh, not throw away my vote um, and or possibly like you know th give Donald Trump uh, an advantage so uh, just that's one example of so many examples that I could give about how these choices have a direct impact on how people behave. And what we're going to uh, do in, in democratic theory and then in political reform is look at what our targets are, right? What do we want people to represent? What kinds of behavior do we want to get out of voters, out of elected officials, out of campaign strategists, and out of parties? And how can we create a system that would uh, that would have them do that, and if the current system that we have falls short of that or actually goes in the opposite direction, what change to the system would get us to go in the direction that we want to go in? Um, now, I do want to pause here for a second to note that um, there will be disagreements about the answers to these questions, because some people will say, well, we want candidates to behave um, in a way that gets them to actually uh, represent the interests of all the people in their district. Uh, and they're not doing that. Uh, 
<clears throat> and other people might say, no, you know what? What we really want is we want our, our candidates to represent um, a set of ideas that they think that that candidate personally thinks is the right set of ideas. We want them looking not at what their, most of their constituents would want, but at the ideas that would promote the common good. So people will disagree about uh, the answer to this question. And so we will get, obviously, fights. And then people will also disagree about the linkage between certain procedures and certain kinds of behaviors. The first question is a question of opinion. It's a question of values. Um, and really, there's no right answer. The second question is a question of political analysis. And while there's no definite, definitive answer, there's no automatic linkage between answers to these questions and a specific type of political behavior, uh, human beings aren't that robotic, aren't that uh, um, subject to specific cause and effect forces, but we can do an analysis and say, yeah, you know, it, first of all, we've seen systems that work this way and we can, we can see uh, how people behave. And second of all, we can use a theory of uh, human psychology and political behavior to determine how a novel, untested type of political structure is going to work out. And the prediction won't be 100% accurate, but it'll be pretty close in, in, in that right direction. So there's a number of different places to disagree. But once we have, once we have got agreement on this, or once somebody, people within a particular movement say, well, we would like our uh, elected officials to behave more like people who are seeking the common good and less like people who are sort of taking the preferences of their constituents and turning it into their votes, then we can uh, figure out how to answer these questions differently any of these, not just these, but any of these questions differently that will get us more in that particular direction. Um, oh, somebody's phone is ringing. It's funny, even though there's nobody in the room, the familiar uh, distraction, and actually it's not that, not that familiar a distraction. Most students know how to turn off their phones. Uh, let's see, I'm gonna have to leave the camera for a second and turn off the phone. And hilariously, it wasn't even a phone, it was just a head, set of Bluetooth headphones that was linked to somebody's phone somewhere else in the house. There are people, they're off camera, there's people, there's my children and my wife are somewhere around here, right? Um, <clears throat> and I told them I was recording and they're not supposed to distract me, but obviously people leave their Bluetooth headphones on. Um, <laughs> now it's driving me crazy. I'm gonna take a drink of water, try to get it out of my head. You probably don't even hear it, but maybe you do. Earlier I heard my daughter making an egg uh, in the kitchen, which is just across this wall. I'm not sure if you heard it or not either, but I heard it. Um, all right, I gotta get rid of these headphones. All right, here I am in week two, and that's the first time I've actually had to leave the camera to, to do something that I find particularly distracting. First time I drink water, first time I've had to leave the, leave the camera. So things are getting a little more human here. If we're going to have an ideological constituency, we have a different set of questions to answer. Um, and I'm going to put that here. Box this guy off. I'm going to create a bunch of boxes. Ideological. An ideological system of representation is going to be uh, something that is what we call proportional representation. PR. And we're going to work with PR an awful lot in this class, or at least a, a decent chunk. Um, so we're going to come back to this. So if, if there are some unanswered questions about it, if there are some set of pros and cons that I don't discuss in this particular lecture, just know that that particular uh, kind of thing is coming. Um, ideological representation is where voters are voting for 
representatives to represent their ideas. And typically the way this works out, instead of having a map, we have an entire at-large territory. And what we have is we have a party slate. And the way that voting works is that parties, which are the representation of different ideological groups, that's how we manifest ideology is, is with parties. Um, parties are now actually heavily regulated in, an, in a PR system, uh, not necessarily heavily regulated in that their, their activities are confined, so much as there are a lot of uh, rules that take into account the nature of parties. Over here in the territorial system, we don't have to have any rules about parties, or we can have very few rules uh, about parties, uh, for example, party primaries or nonpartisan primaries. Um, we t we uh, have, this is our dominant system, and, you know, and uh, specifically single districts, plurality, single, uh, um, single vote uh, system. The, uh, the, the reason why we have this is because when our system was developed, this idea didn't even exist. Also, even if it did exist, it would probably have been rejected because the founders uh, didn't like parties. And in fact, they specifically hoped that parties wouldn't develop, which was hilariously naive because later the very same people uh, who were delegates to the Constitutional Convention and who kind of uh, hoped that parties wouldn't uh, evolve themselves founded parties and engaged in what we, what even by today's standards were pretty hyper-partisan uh, behaviors. But in a, to have ideological representation you have to actually have parties, and parties will be defined political units. They won't just be things that grow up uh, as part of the uh, political system evolving like, like happened in our system. Um, and therefore, much of the regulation of parties now is kind of reactive as opposed to proactive. In an ideological representative system, you have to have a proactive uh, set of policies because parties are the things that are being voted for, right? A party slate is what people are voting for, and what a party slate is is uh, however many seats there are in the uh, legislature, let's say we're looking at a, uh, at a 20 person city council, right? We don't have to go to the national level. All, all of these ideas can apply at every level of democracy. Let's say we have a pretty decent sized city, um, you know, uh, like Seattle, and we want to have a pretty big city council. I'm not sure how many people are on the city council of Seattle, but I think it's more than the five that we have. We actually have a very small city council for the size city that we now are. Um, but let's say we have, uh, we wanna have a 20 person city council and then the mayor is going to be the tie-breaking vote, the 21st uh, member. Um, we're not even looking at executive systems yet today, so just note, note that that's off to the side. And we wanna do it in with a PR thing. All the parties that are running are going to put up uh, at most 20 names. And the reason why at most is because there's only 20 seats, and so you can't put 21 names on. If you win 100% of the vote, you can only put 20 people on a thing. Now, realistically, no party's going to win all of 100% uh, of the vote and get all of the seats. But uh, so you think, well, why would they put uh, a full number of people on the slate? That, you know, it's, it's because that's how big the slate is. And there's something to be said about being on the party slate. It's, it actually indicates that you are that high up enough in the sort of esteem of the, uh, the party members that you belong on the slate. But if there's a 20 seat city council and you're tw uh, 18th on the slate of your party, that means you're not gonna get a seat because the, uh, your party, unless your party gets 90% of the vote, which is probably not going to happen. But that's how it happens. You have a party slate and uh, then what people do is there's a single party vote, or excuse me, there's a party vote, um, and it is a single party vote because 
essentially, everybody wins. Um, everybody but the most minor parties uh, win. So if there's 20 seats, that means that uh, it takes 5% of the vote to get a seat. So if the uh, Democratic Party wins 40% of the vote, it gets eight of those 20 seats. If the Republican Party gets 37% of the vote, it gets, mm, right, good question. Does it get eight seats or does it get seven seats? When we have a party vote, we have to have a method of counting. I didn't talk about the counting method over here. Um, actually, I did talk about the counting method, which was how we bump and rejuggle uh, things. Um, we have to have a threshold and rounding criteria. Um, <clears throat> the threshold uh, could be, the at, theoretically, the threshold is whatever the uh, number of seats is divided into 100. So the, the, the minimum threshold is 5%, right? So um, if a party doesn't get 5% of the vote, it doesn't get one seat even at all. Though if it gets 4%, does it get one seat? Uh, so that's part of the rounding, how do we do rounding, but we can also set the threshold higher. Uh, and a lot of uh, countries that use uh, PR voting for their legislature or for part of the legislature has a threshold. Um, and the, the, the size of the threshold is very important because it will determine how many, not directly determine, it will definitely heavily influence how many parties there are able to exist, uh, um, realistically exist in this political system. If, for example, we set the threshold at 20% for our city council elections for 20 seats, that means that any party that doesn't get at least 20% gets zero seats, and all of the votes that uh, are cast for that party in a typical system just go away. And then the way that we do rounding is that, let's say that a party got 15, one party got 15% of the vote, only 85% of the votes count, and so those 85% then become the 100%. Uh, of the votes in terms of deciding what the proportions are. Uh, another way of doing that, and it's pretty rare, though it's theoretically possible, is to do ranked preference balloting, um, where if a party doesn't reach the threshold, people can have a second party choice, and when that party, let's say the Socialist Party, only gets 15% of the votes and we have a 20% threshold, second people's second choices will get reallocated. So let's say almost everybody's second choice is the Social Democratic Party, or possibly the Democratic Party, um, so if the Socialist Party doesn't reach the 20% threshold, its votes get redistributed the same way as in ranked uh, preference. That, that is theoretically possible, and I, as I said uh, earlier, like we have to take into account all the theoretical possibilities. In reality, what we're really going to have is probably just a, your votes get lost. Um, but the, if you decide to set a higher threshold, it might make sense to do ranked preference balloting with parties. But what you're doing here is you're voting for a party. What you're doing over here, and I didn't note it, but uh, you're always voting for a candidate, not a party. And whether you're voting for a candidate with you, that you get to just choose one person that we're familiar with, or you get to um, do a ranked preference, or you get to do multi, uh, fill out multiples for uh, if there's a, a long list of people for, for added points, you're still voting for a candidate. Here, you're not voting for a candidate. You're voting for a party. And what you're doing is you're voting for that party's slate. So, and that's published, uh, and so you know, you're like, okay, let's say there's the Jack Party. This is just as, as an example. Um, the Jack Party is, uh, a, you know, I'm the party head, and so I'm number one on the slate. So if we get even one seat, I get that seat. And then number two on the party slate is probably gonna be my son Zane, and actually he's probably gonna be number one on the, on the party slate. If we get two seats, 
I get a seat, he gets a seat. Third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Wherever you are on the party slate, if your party gets that many seats, you get to have one of those seats. So you're voting for a set of people, and you know their names, but you're really voting for the party as a whole. You can't say, well, you know, I like number four on that list, so I really hope that they get at least four seats. If they only get three seats because there aren't enough votes, then that fourth person, fourth person doesn't get in. And when you vote for that party, you are voting in the hopes that there'll be enough that that fourth person gets there, but you're not voting for that fourth person. You're voting for the party as a whole. Um, and so what we get here is we get uh, the fact that instead of winners and losers, where in a territorial-based system, uh, if you vote for the person that didn't win, even if there's a ranked preference balloting, right? Um, if, you know, let's say that you're, the person who won wasn't even on your list, like you had your top three choices and it wasn't there, you, you, you're a loser, right? In the sense that not like, you're a loser, man, you just you know, get a life, but maybe you are a loser in that way too, but uh, you're a loser in the sense that, that nobody that you wanted gets there. In a PR system, except for parties that are very small, that, that don't meet the minimum criteria for one seat, or if the threshold is higher, that don't reach that threshold, you get something. And you, you and the, your, the, your ideological cohort, the constituency, the other people who vote for that same party, you get as much political power as the size of your group is. Um, so if you're part of a group that is 40% of the electorate, your party that you've all voted for gets 40% of the seats. Um, and that means that except for minor parties, people are winners. Uh, now, one of the things that we can talk about in terms of how do we want candidates to behave, I hope you can see already that there are two different types of politics that are gonna emerge depending on which type of uh, representative system we're going, we, we have. Um, here, candidates, one, they're, they're campaigning collectively, and here they're campaigning individually. It doesn't mean that parties don't have an important role in how uh, these candidates behave, what they do, how they're funded, how they conduct their campaigns. But parties are a support network over here. And for a party to win 40% of the seats, it has to win them one at a time. Um, over here, the party is the thing that's on the ballot. So people are campaigning collectively. So this is an individualist version of campaigning, and this is a collectivist version of campaigning. And probably just hearing those two words makes you uh, realize why it is that we, in America, skew towards this. Not only was our electoral system invented, our constitution was written at a time when this didn't even exist, and certainly the idea of a demographic group being represented didn't exist, because the only demographic group that mattered, property owning white men, was already 100% of the representation. But this is a very individualist-oriented system, and we have a very individualist-oriented culture. I hope that's not a surprise to anybody. Um, and so it makes it this seem, not only is this unfamiliar, but it also, even when the idea is put forward, it can seem alien to people. Um, the, uh, the other thing that typically is uh, an outcome of the differences here is that this system is typically going to get us a two-party system, and this system is typically going to get us a multi-party system. And the reason for that is quite simply, and there's a, it, there's a more complex explanation, but um, is that when you need the most votes, it behooves you to create a coalition before the election, to build a coalition so that you can get the most votes. Here, 
when you just get the amount of uh, legislative power that your group has, it actually, there's an incentive to stay pure to your ideological vision, not to build a coalition with people that you kind of agree with and kind of disagree with, right? Unless you're so small that uh, you can't reach the threshold. So if the socialists and the democratic socialists by themselves aren't gonna have enough votes to get over the threshold, then they have an incentive to form a coalition. But if uh, a group of people who are socialist-oriented, uh, you know, progressive, uh, if they actually have, you know, say 30% of the population share and the threshold is only 10%, there's actually there an incentive to fragment over ideological uh, disagreements. Because if you fragment, you can still have power and win seats, and yet you can stay pure to your vision. Um, in this type of system, when parties fragment, they just lose everything, right? This is one of the things that happens when the Democratic Party breaks up into coalitions, the Republican Party breaks up into coalitions. The other party, without necessarily getting any stronger or getting any more uh, broadening in support, will win more elections. It's because we, we mostly have a plurality system, so you just need the most votes, right? The best thing that can happen to you as a candidate in this type of system is to have people who are on the other side run two candidates, right? Uh, so uh, a spoiler candidate that splits the vote, and you don't even necessarily need to broaden your uh, electoral appeal, you just need to stay there and watch them uh, break apart. So uh, this is the main difference, and there are fewer questions to answer here, at least in terms of the electoral system, than there are to answer here because there's a lot of potential complexity in how it is that we decide uh, who is going to be there. Here, we have to decide like what's the size of the, of the body we're electing, right? And that's a basic question. Here, we have to decide how many people per district, which is partly related to how, how big of a size is. We don't need a map here. Here, I mean, this is, I, I kind of breezed over it in terms of how many questions we have to answer and talked a lot more about these things down here, but this is an extremely contentious thing to have to do. There's no need to do that in, a, uh, in, in, in this type of system. So, so each of these systems brings with it certain questions that you must answer, and then also certain questions that you don't have to answer. So there, there are those that, in this case, because this is actually a shorter list of questions and they're, and they're more straightforward, um, there's less controversy within the system itself. Right? You never have to wrangle over the map. You never have to wrangle over uh, the ballot type, really. Um, you wrangle over pretty much just these levels and how many people uh, there are. Um, let me take my take a look at my notes and see. Uh, oh, right. Um, the other thing that we have to answer for both of these is what is the election cycle? This is why I have notes sometimes because otherwise I forget things. I'm like, oh, there it is. Good election cycle. How long do people get elected for? And what, if anything, triggers a new election? Now, in the world, typically, in this type of system, there's nothing that triggers a new election except the, except, excuse me, except the expiration of the election cycle. So elections for the House of Representatives happen every two years. No matter what goes on, that, that won't happen except every two years except a death or retirement, and then different states have different ways of uh, filling that particular seat. So that, that's, it's true that something will trigger an election, but nothing will trigger a, a, a brand new election of everybody in the House of Representatives except the coming of an even year, November. 
in a PR system, um, there are, uh, it's most common to actually be able to have uh, um, snap elections, and partly that's because here, because it incentivizes a multi-party system, it's pretty uh, common for no single party to have a majority of seats. And so what has to happen is the coalition building, which in a territorial system tends to go on pre-election, so you can get the most votes, and you hold your coalition together. Uh, coalitions here happen post-election because groups need to come together to get a majority of seats to elect a government, to pass any kind of policy through. And what can happen to a post-election coalition is that it could fall apart. Um, and that can result in a vote of no confidence and uh, a set of new elections that are usually called snap elections. So the election cycle and the question is, is it fixed or not, right? Um, <clears throat> and even if you have the possibility of snap elections at a certain time, you still are going to have to answer the question of how long is the election cycle. If you win, you get a two-year term. And if nothing happens, we have elections again in two years. If the coalitions fall apart, we have snap elections before that two years. Or it's a three-year cycle, or a four-year cycle, or a six-year cycle. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the, the election cycle. Is it uh, um, uh, uh, matched to everybody, or is it cyclical? Um, in the House of Representatives, the two-year cycle is matched to everybody. Every two years, everybody runs for re-election. We could have it so that half of the um, seats are up for election in even years, and half are up for odd years. We don't have that system. Um, but we do have something like that in the Senate, which is the two senators in each state don't run for re-election for re in the same election cycle. They are scattered. A third of Senate seats come up for re-election every two years. So that's uh, a, uh, one of the questions that gets asked about election cycle. How long is the election and how are, they, uh, how, how, are, how are the elections distributed? If you have a city council of 20 people, you might decide that they're going to have uh, um, four-year terms and that half of them are going to run in a certain year and the other half are going to run in another year. If you have 20 city council members, you could have a fourth of them running each year so that uh, in, uh, in 2020, uh, five people run for re-election in 2021, another five run and they get a four-year term. You could stagger the terms. Uh, many city councils, like the Senate, use staggered terms instead of, uh, matched, instead of matched terms. So that's another question that you have to answer. There, there are, I'm, even with my notes here, I know there are other questions that uh, I'm leaving off, um, but <clears throat> I want to move on because I see that uh, I'm running low on time and I'm actually going to check the time here. I have a clock, but it doesn't tell me exactly how long I've been doing it because this is not a normal classroom period. Uh, so it's 12.05 right now, um, but I'm at one uh, hour and 19 minutes, which means I have at most another half an hour. Um, and I didn't necessarily think I was going to do hour and 15 minute lectures, but sometimes there's a ton to cover. Uh, the other thing that we have to answer, um, we're already seeing that how do we want them to behave is kind of coming out of the, uh, just the answer of the question, what do they represent? The other uh, question that we do have to ask ourselves is not just the models of representation, um, that what are people going to represent, um, but the models of representative behavior. Okay, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do some erasing. <clears throat> For those of you listening in, on audio only, we're switching now to board number two. Uh, <clears throat> the models of representative behavior 
slash decision making more directly answers this question. How do we want our representatives to behave once they're in office? Um, and so, so far I've mostly been talking about legislative systems, but this could, these questions could apply to judicial systems and executive systems as well. Um, one thing about PR that I should have noted, it's, it, it's no longer here, but this is where it would be in, in terms of the board, um, is that PR is really useful only for legislative systems. It could be used for judicial systems, but it's a little squirrely that, that way. It definitely can't be used uh, effectively for executive systems. And typically what happens in a system that uses proportional representation is that the executive is chosen by the members of the legislature. So we get a parliamentary system, uh, a parliamentary proportional system. Whereas if you have uh, territorial representation, you could have a parliamentary system. You could let your elected representatives choose the executive, or you could have a separate, what's usually called presidential system, where the people directly vote for that one particular office. Um, when, you're, when you have a uh, presidential system, then it raises all kinds of questions about, well, how do we operate that presidential system? What should it look like when the people are directly electing that one uh, representative? The idea of a parliamentary election actually is going to put an intermediate between even the people and the representatives because the executive represents the people. Um, but it's the people's representatives who choose the executive. So there's one extra layer uh, in there. But uh, today, I should have said this at the outset, but we're gonna, I'm going to focus uh, almost entirely, though I'll note some other things about executive and judicial uh, elections, but almost entirely on legislative elections. How do we want our representatives, our legislators, to behave. Um, and also, also, how do we want our executives and judicial officers to behave if we're asking that question? We can ask that question for all three branches. Um, there are three basic models for what people want out of behavior. There's the delegate model, the trustee model, and the leadership model. Under the delegate model, we want our representatives to express in their behavior and their decision making what the constituents themselves would do, would want to do if they were in the legislature themselves. So the delegate is supposed to be essentially uh, the linkage between constituents' interests and ideas and uh, political outcomes. Uh, they're uh, in other words, they're kind of a pass-through. You have been chosen as a delegate to go to, and the term delegate uh, in terms of a convention is, uh, is where the term delegate is mostly used. You've been chosen by people to go there and do what they would do if they were going there. Now, this is problematic when you have a diverse group of people because uh, are you supposed to do uh, what everybody collectively would want you to do, or are you supposed to do what the people who voted for you would do? Uh, the delegate model assumes, like the best case scenario, it assumes that, assumes that what you're going to do is you're going to do what is um, in the interest of all of your constituents, that you are a delegate for them, right? All of them. Even though only some group of people voted for you, another group of people voted for others, that ideally you're supposed to take into account what is good for all your constituents, you're supposed to serve all of your constituents, um, but in reality, when the delegate model obtains, when uh, one, the electoral system pushes winning candidates into thinking of, thinking of themselves as delegates, 
And two, when a person who wins just says, well, that's my job, my role, um, then in reality, many of these delegate legislators are going to pay attention to not even necessarily all of the people who voted for them, but the key people who voted for them that got them the win and that will get them the win next time. So uh, the ideal of the delegate model is that you are a, 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 the voice of all the people in your constituency and you do what collectively sort of arithmetically count, you know, uh, uh, counted off they would want, which is like, that's, that's very difficult. What, is, what, do, what does everybody in a constituency really want? Unless they all voted for you and they tell you and then you go behave that way and, and they go about their lives, that ideal is unobtainable. Um, there's almost always going to be some subset of the people who are going to be chosen. Um, the trustee model is where you are being trusted by the people in your constituency to do what you think is right. Okay, so the delegate model means you represent, I should, the word represent, is that you represent your constituents' interests and ideas. You're a pass along. The trustee is where you do what you think is right and best. You don't say, well, what do my constituents want? You say, what's the right thing to do? What's best for them? And the reason why this is a different model of behavior is because what you're doing when you elect a trustee is you're actually electing somebody that you trust more than yourself to know what is right and best. Um, and uh, what you're picking then is somebody based on their character not based on whether or not they themselves either promise or seem likely to represent your ideas and interests. So candidates in, with each of these uh, models will behave differently and voters will look at uh, candidates differently and they will evaluate them and cast their votes differently. Right? Um, <clears throat> in reality, in our political system and really in almost any political system, representatives are going to have some mixture of the delegate and the trustee. Right? They're going to Definitely have to pay attention if we have a territorial constituency and you have to go back and win the most votes time and time again to keep getting to keep winning your seat. You're going to pay attention to some subset of your constituents' ideas and interests because if you don't, the voters are going to punish you, uh, and so you have to pay attention to that. But also, there's the expectation that we send you to Salem or Washington D.C. or City Hall or wherever we're sending you the voters. We're sending you there to do our bidding, right? This is that's what we want. Um, so this tends to be the dominant model. But if we do have a trustee model, and th there, there's a sense in which this is up really more to the political culture uh, than it is to the electoral system, then people are going to vote for you based on your character. Do I trust this person? They seem like they're going to do a, uh, the right thing. Do they have the level of expertise, the good judgment uh, that is going to uh, um, be uh, what I would respect, even if I don't necessarily agree with, with what they do, the, the, the votes they take, the um, decisions they make. Uh, I trust them in general to do the right thing, trust them more than I trust uh, myself. So that's what a voter is going to be doing. You can imagine a very different style of campaigning will uh, result from the expectation that you're a delegate or the expectation that you're a trustee. This is going to be very issue-oriented. <clears throat> there will of course be character and personality involved, that you can't divorce that from that. But what uh, voters are going to 
ultimately make their decision based on is, do you, as a person, seem trustworthy to advance my interests and ideas? Um, the trustees are going to run almost purely on character and background and skills. Uh, and so they're going to appeal to the fact that um, people uh, trust that they're going to make the right decision. Now, the leadership model is where the expectation here is that you're actually going to unify a diverse set of people and uh, unify them around what you think is the right thing. So you're going to unify and do what's right and best. So the leadership model is, is you know, adjacent to the trustee model in the sense that there still is some kind of doing what's right and best, but what the voters are looking for and what you yourself are looking for is not to uh, seek to represent some subset of the people, but to bring people together. Now, I've said that the delegate model is the dominant model um, for our political system, and that is absolutely true in the case of legislative elections. Uh, that because we have territorial-based constituencies and we're sending a person there and uh, they're going to have to come back for re-election later uh, um, and most of what people are going to want to do is like, well, did you serve us, right? We're going to vote for you again if you served us. Um, <clears throat> so the electoral system sort of uh, pushes in this direction, but also our political culture pushes in this direction because we like to see our, uh, we expect that our legislators are going to be people who do what we want. That's why we vote for them. Our vote is essentially a proxy for our own ideas and interests. So this is where political culture and electoral systems uh, um, uh, overlap. You can't, with political reform, change the political culture very much. You can move it a little by changing, by changing uh, structures that will get people to behave a little differently and then that will nudge the political culture, but you can't usually change the political culture. Whereas you can change uh, other things by changing what the political system itself looks like. Um, if you changed from a territorial constituency to an ideological constituency, from a district-based winner-take-all system to a proportional representation system, you're going to get a change in behavior. And you might still have a delegate model, but that delegate model is going to play out very differently because your constituents are different people. Um, ideological uh, representatives, people who represent a party constituency, they are directly expected to represent their constituents' ideas, and they know what those ideas are. That's how you win. Um, so the delegate model is actually crisper under a proportional representative system than it is under a territorial representative system because in a territorial system you have to figure out what is really in your constituents' interest. You have to ask yourself, well, who does really matter when there's conflicts, when I can't do all things for all people, which you never can, who, who, who's, whose ideas and interests will I serve? In a proportional system, this is strengthened. Um, in a territorial system, there's a possibility to really be a trustee and do what you think is right. In a PR system, if what you think is right departs from the ideological platform that your party stood for, you're not going to win re-election. You probably won't even get put back on the party slate in the same position or at all in the next uh, round because the party's going to say, hey, wait a minute, you started doing what you thought was right and best and not what our uh, ideological constituents' ideas are, and that doesn't play with us. So in a PR system, veering into the trustee role is going to actually get you punished. Whereas in the ter our territorial system, people are really kind of a mix uh, of these two things. And in fact, candidates who do things that are, that potentially go against the ideas and interests uh, because they think it's the right thing to do, um, 
are going to go back to the voters and say, I did the, what I thought was right, and uh, I, I had to act that way. It was my conscience told me to do this, uh, despite the fact that you elected me to do something completely different. You elected me to curtail federal spending, and I voted for a $2 trillion uh, stimulus bill because I thought it was the right thing to do at the right time. Even if you didn't think it was the right thing to do at the right time, I thought it was the right thing to do. Trust me again. So uh, we can have a mixture of these uh, in a territorial constituency, but uh, de the delegate model is really going to obtain very strongly under a PR system. Uh, the delegate model is mostly going to obtain in a legislative system. The trustee model is largely going to obtain in judicial elections. And partly that's because the job of a judge is different than the job of a legislator. The job of a judge is to uh, oversee trials, interpret the law, interpret the Constitution, make uh, decisions, uh, difficult decisions based on legal precedent and the rule of law. Basically, the judge's job is more technical than a legislator's job because they're working within the confines of a particular legal discourse. And that discourse is set by the Constitution, by statutes, and by uh, precedent and the terms of uh, legal reasoning. And so we really are electing a technical person. And judicial candidates are going to say, I'm the trustworthy one to do what's right and best. You don't know the law. You don't know the Constitution. You don't know the technical rules of uh, trial or appellate courts. You don't know case precedent. Trust me to do the best job. And uh, in fact, a lot of judicial elections are regulated so that that is actually how judicial candidates have to campaign. Um, the, uh, in, in, in Oregon, we have elected judgeship positions, and in fact, I just recently interviewed a woman who's running for uh, Multnomah County uh, Circuit Court Judge, and I didn't know a whole, I knew a little bit, but I didn't know a whole lot about it, and I asked her, I said, well, you know, what is it like to run as a judicial candidate? Because she'd been involved in, in uh, political campaigns for legislative candidates for most of her political career, and she said, well, it's, it's interesting because, one, <clears throat> you can't raise money directly, um, because uh, you're supposed to be an impartial arbiter of the law, and so if you raise money, it's going to seem like the ideas and interests of people who give you money are going to influence your decisions. It's okay to raise money under this model because, uh, I mean, there might be other distortions that money creates, but if you, know, if you take money from various groups, from labor unions and from the Chamber of Commerce and from uh, firefighters, uh, then you're going to represent their interests more strongly. That kind of fits the delegate model. It definitely goes against the trustee model. The other thing that you can't do running for a judicial position is you can't take a position on issues. You can't campaign in the way that we normally think of campaigning by making promises as to what you're going to do. You have to campaign essentially on your character, your record, your integrity, um, how it is that you will behave as a judge. Uh, and so the, the law actually prohibits you from engaging in certain kinds of campaigning to make sure that the trustee model actually does obtain. Even if that weren't the law, it would probably be the case that judicial candidates would run because they're really running for more of a trustee-type position. Leadership model is, as you know, you're probably guessing it already, is much more likely to, to obtain in an executive uh, election. Executives will, people running for executive positions, president, governor, will of course make promises like people running uh, in, a, in a legislative, uh, you know, and they'll say, I'm going to serve your interests, here are, here, are, here are the ideas that I'm going to advance, 
free college for all, tax cuts, deregulation of the environment, uh, whatever it happens to be, exec people running for the executive will, will run on that. But because they're running for one position where there's bound to be diversity of people, I mean, there's bound to be diversity of people when you're representing a, a district as well, but there's bound to be diversity. What you're partly running on, whether you do it explicitly or not, you are implicitly saying that you're going to unify and that also you can be trusted to do what's right and best um, since the decisions are very big and also you as the executive are way more remote from your electorate than people who are elected in the legislature who have a specifically distinct, uh, it might be large, like if you're a senator from California, it's a pretty large territory, but you have a distinct territory that you are representing. When you're an executive, you're, you're representing the entire territory. There's no map, right? I mean, there's a map because you know, if you're the governor of Oregon, there's a map of Oregon, but you represent everybody there. And in a way, whether you choose to campaign this way or not, and whether you choose to behave this way as an executive or not, the leadership model is the one that's fitted. So basically, what I'm saying here is that we do, from our executives, we do tend to expect this model. From our judicial candidates, if we elect them, we expect this model. And in fact, if they're appointed, we also expect this model, and we're disappointed when uh, appointed uh, judges actually behave more like uh, uh, partisan candidates, and we are fine with and expect the delegate model to obtain for the legislature or some kind of mixture of delegate trustee model uh, for the legislature. Um, how we get, as a democratic society, our representatives to behave according to the appropriate model is as I said, partly a result of our political culture, but partly a result of our electoral systems too. So you can't definitely determine how people will act once they're in office, which of these models is going to obtain. But when you set up a, an electoral system for these various offices, you can keep these in mind, and there are gonna be certain decisions that are gonna make it more likely that this is the kind of people you get winning, or less likely that these are the kind of people that you get winning. Um, there are a couple of other considerations that are relevant to the whole question of representation in the election. And I'm not even going to put it on the board. I have it in my notes, uh, but I'm just going to kind of state them because this will, these will be things that we will discuss in various issues as we move into uh, specific areas of political reform in future weeks. Um, what are the consequences for different parts of our political system, of our electoral system? What are the consequences for the parties? What are the consequences for the system of governance? And what are the consequences for voter behavior? Um, these are important things because do we want, for example, a multi-party system? Do we want to have a greater diversity of parties representing people and actually winning uh, elections sometimes, right? Uh, or are we comfortable with the two-party system? Um, <clears throat> or comfortable with the, li the, the likelihood that the two parties will be the dominant parties and maybe third-party uh, candidates win here, here or there? So that's one question. And a lot of Americans are dissatisfied with the two-party system because they don't feel like they fit neatly into either box and they don't like the behavior of these parties. Um, uh, yet there are plenty of people who are satisfied with or you know, implicitly satisfied with the two-party system. One of the things about a two-party system is it does simplify the task of deciding who to vote for. Um, it's much easier to determine who you're gonna vote for if you have a Democratic and a Republican candidate and you fit 
maybe not neatly in either of those boxes, but you definitely lean in one of those directions. And when you don't, or when there's a particular candidate who is from one party or the other and you, uh, you yourself are not aligned with either one, then it still simplifies it because there's only going to be two people running, typically. I mean, there could be more than two, but typically, so it's a simpler choice. It reduces the amount of research you have to do. Uh, it reduces the complexity of your decision. It's a more blunt decision, and that's one of the reasons why it's so dissatisfying to people, because you're like, well, I don't like either of them, right? But choosing the lesser of two evils is simpler than choosing the greatest of six potential uh, people who are running. So I'm not saying that all Americans are satisfied with the two-party system or that none of them are. It's, some are and some aren't. Um, what does our system do for voters? And the big question here really is level of engagement. What do our electoral decisions do in terms of either incentivizing or disincentivizing people from voting a lot, from being engaged, from paying a lot of attention? Um, all of the different decisions that were listed over here under territorial, are they all have uh, a pretty significant impact on how the voter thinks and behaves, how likely it is that somebody's going to get involved in voting, and how likely they're going to decide not to uh, get involved in voting. And so part of the question is, do we really care? Or how much do we care? I shouldn't say do we really. Of course we care about voter engagement, but how much? Like, is that a super top priority, right? Do we want to create a system that does as much as possible to get a high level of voter turnout? Or do we accept that Voter turnout is what it is, right? In a free country, people either vote or don't vote. Their uh, vote is their voice, and they either choose to exercise that voice or not. And so voter turnout and, and voter engagement is a secondary concern, right? It's never going to be like, ah, screw it, who cares? Um, or maybe, maybe, I shouldn't say never, never say never. But it's most likely, certainly among a democratic theorist, isn't going to be that way. But it could be a low priority. Um, and then the third question, the third area of concern is governance. How well does our electoral system translate into an effective, efficient, legitimate seeming, because legitimacy is a sense, legitimate seeming uh, government? Do, do, how do we elect people? And does it give us the people who are going to do the best job? Um, and that is, again, we might say, well, you know what? That's, that's not a concern. What's a concern is making sure that the people get represented in a particular way, either ideologically or uh, in terms of uh, their territory, and let the, ch the governance chips fall the way they fall. Um, or we like a particular electoral process for choosing our, uh, our, our chief executive um, because it satisfies what seems to be right and democratic, and if that sometimes gets us great executives and sometimes gets us disastrous executives, uh, that's just the price to pay for living in a democratic society. So, the issue of governance doesn't necessarily have to be the critical standard that's used to evaluate it, but it's a potential one. So actually, now that I'm saying all this stuff, I probably should uh, write these things down. Party system, voter engagement, and governance quality. It might seem idiotic to say, well, I don't care about voter engagement, but if uh, prioritizing voter engagement and maximizing voter engagement is going to sacrifice other values, um, it might actually sacrifice governance quality. Uh, and if you say, no, you know what's really most important is making sure that the best people can get elected to do the job so that we have a high quality government, that actually might involve 
procedures and rules uh, and institutions that turn people off uh, because they're not necessarily feeling like, you know, it's like imagine that you're voting really just among experts and you're like, you don't relate to any of those people. And you're like, I don't, I, I wouldn't want to have a beer with any of those jerks. Uh, then we're going to get a high level of uh, governance quality potentially if that's how we orient our system, and yet we're going to sacrifice uh, voter engagement. The party system, it, it, that's a really tough question. Like, do we even care whether we have two parties or more parties? And if we do care, if we, if we want a vigorous multi-party system, um, that might, one, create a higher level of voter engagement, but two, it might negatively impact our governance quality uh, because we actually have a coalition government is actually a much more difficult, fluid system than an administration that is uh, a majority of one party or another party. So these questions, while you could say, well, we would love a multi-party system with a high level of voter engagement and the greatest governance quality we could possibly have, you can't necessarily have all of those things. You have to make uh, um, tough decisions. Or you could just say, you know, these aren't really relevant criteria for how we set up an electoral system. What we want is to set up an electoral system that turns the people's ideas into action with the greatest level of efficiency, whether that in fact involves a low level of voter engagement or uh, a low level of governance quality or a two-party or a multi-party system. What we want is we just want to set it up theoretically so that there's a really direct linkage between people and their representatives and policy. Um, and I should note that one of the uh, things about that linkage is that it probably, in a lot of cases, could work against governance quality. Right? When the people get what they want out of policy, they're often foolish. Right? We get what we want, and we pay the price, and we're like, oh, right, we didn't think of all those things. And that, that, that is a thing that happens, I won't say frequently, but uh, definitely with ballot measures, where people are like, yeah, we want that thing, and then they get that thing, and then it turns out to actually have what were, for them, unintended consequences. And they go, oh, no, shoot, I shouldn't, there's, there's, there can be, easily be buyer's remorse when it comes to ballot measures. There can definitely be buyer's remorse when it comes to uh, uh, you know, voting for uh, elected officials like, yeah, you know, yeah, I wanted a wrecking ball in the White House. And I was like, oh, this is what it means to have a wrecking ball in the White House. I thought I wanted a wrecking ball in the White House, but what I really, really should have wanted was somebody who's actually calm and expert and, and steady in a crisis, uh, for example. I'm, you know, just, that's just a kind of a, a vague, vague metaphor for something that might or might not be going on in the world right now at this exact moment. Um, okay. Uh, next lecture this week is going to be another lecture on uh, um, democratic theory that's going to be more oriented towards uh, participation and deliberation, uh, which is uh, a, a related topic uh, to uh, elections and representation, but there's a different set of readings and a different set of issues. Obviously, it's going to be different. I'm not going to just repeat the same uh, lecture. So this one is gone. I think I actually am almost at the, it might be close to the hour and 50 minutes. Um, and I both apologize for that and also don't apologize because it's an hour and 50 minute class. So an hour and 50 minute lecture is something that you can expect once in a while. Probably not every time, but here it is. First lecture of week two. Bam. All right, guys. Uh, that's it. Sign it off. Bye.